of housekeeping before we begin. I am right now battling a uh, sinus infection that I tend to get uh, every year this time of year. Uh, I am reasonably certain it's not the other thing, and uh, sinus infections are not contagious. However, out of a, an abundance of caution, it's probably a good idea if I keep my distance from everybody. So to that end, when the <laughs> you can go all the way to the background, so I don't mind. Um, to that end, uh, Brother Kevin Cox, when the invitation comes, will come and receive anyone uh, who would like to come forward for salvation or um, church membership or just to pray. Uh, so I just wanted you to know uh, why I wasn't up here at the end of the service. So, Happy New Year. Has it been a good one? I want you to know I have managed not to work at all so far this year. So, so far, it's been a pretty good year. That probably changes tomorrow. But uh, my prayer for you is that you do have a happy new year and that in this new year, God blesses you. And the chief way that he blesses you is by drawing you ever closer to him and conforming you to look ever more like Jesus this year. Uh, man, it would be a great thing this year if Jesus came back, wouldn't it? Mm, that would be a good thing. Uh, that, that is uh, something that we all ought to pray for, that in his timing, Jesus returns. And what a great 2022 it would be if that was this year. Um, I hope that you have enjoyed uh, Pastor Randy's sermon series over the last month as he has surveyed some of the uh, most beloved Christmas carols and, and given us the theological underpinnings that, that uh, those that wrote them pulled from the Christmas story. Um, but alas, Christmas is over. And uh, as much as I am disappointed that the Christmas season has passed, I am equally excited because it means that we will jump back into our journey through the Gospel of John. So to that end, uh, our passage today is from John, and we will be in chapter 6 if you want to get your Bibles ready for that. A, a number of years ago, um, I, I can't remember how long ago, I can't remember if uh, we had Matthew, uh, I know we definitely had Allison, but uh, Diana and I found ourselves making a cross-country journey, and, and we were either going down to Florida to visit Disney World, or we were going to Texas to visit Diana's family, but we were on this cross-country journey, and, and I don't know if you're like us, but when we take long trips like this, we tend to do fast food, quick food, in the car, so that we can get to the destination as soon as possible. And this will be a real shock to you all, I know, but one of our favorites is Chick-fil-A. So a number of years ago, we were traveling south, and in one of the southern states, we decided to stop at a Chick-fil-A for lunch. Uh, needed to use the restroom, so we were going to park, go in, take care of that, then get our food and get on the road. Well, the minute we parked the car, I opened the door and I stepped out of the car, and I smelled the air... I knew that either a sandwich or a nugget was not going to taste right. See, let me fill this in for you just a little bit. When I was in high school, I worked at Chick-fil-A. I worked at the Chick-fil-A in the mall that is uh, no longer there. And one of the things that happens 
infrequently, but from time to time, is that the oil burns. Now, that's what we would call it. Technically, the oil that you fry the chicken in, it doesn't, I don't think it actually burns. It just sort of sours uh, because you have to clean the pressure, the pressure fryer. You have to clean it after so many cooking cycles. And if you don't do that, uh, crud builds up on the coils. And if you don't monitor the oil level so that it covers the coils, the oil will go bad, and all the, cook, the chicken that's cooked in that, that fryer will taste wrong. It won't taste good. And the minute I stepped out of the car and smelled the smell of burned oil and knew that the chicken sandwich wasn't going to taste so hot, my mind immediately transported me back to standing in front of one of these hennies, is what they're called, henny pennies, kind of a funny name, but one of these hennies and literally, you know, scrubbing out the, the coils and actually using the super, super hot oil. It was the only time I was ever scared when I worked there. And, and, and using the oil to sort of rinse off the, and clean these hennies. Um, and, and it was like I was there having just smelled this smell. You see, when you go to Chick-fil-A, my guess is you walk in and you smell the chicken sandwich and the waffle fries and, and perhaps your mouth waters because you know you're going to get a, a good meal. Or, or when you bite into your sandwich, perhaps you get that sort of feel-good feeling because your brain is releasing dopamine into your body, which is that chemical, that hormone that tells your body, hey, everything's all right right now. That's probably what you get when you go to Chick-fil-A. When I go to Chick-fil-A, and I smell the smells, and I, I taste the sandwich, my heart and mind are immediately transported back to when I worked at Chick-fil-A. And I, I think of the work ethic that was instilled in me there. You see, there was a saying when we worked at Chick-fil-A, if you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. Mike knows it. Mike and I work together. Yeah, this was a work ethic. There is no idleness here, okay? Your time, Mr. Ken is paying for your time, you better earn it. Now, I did a lot of leaning. Don't tell Ken. All right? But I learned that work ethic there. And my heart and my mind are transported back, and I think of dear friends that I work with, like Mike Soule, like Wes Stevenson, like Paul Dickinson, dear friends who made working at Chick-fil-A a joy because we fellowshiped together as we did hard work. You see, food has a very powerful hold over our minds and what we do and what we say and what we think. I don't know if you know this, but of your five senses, your taste and your smell are the two that are most inextricably linked. Um, your brain actually has what amounts to a processing center that takes all the signals that the body takes in and, and takes those signals and figures out what they are and sends it to the right part of your brain to process it. However, the receptors in your mouth, and in particular, the receptors in your nose, they actually bypass that processing center of your brain, and they are directly linked to the parts of your brain called the amygdala and the hippocampus. Those are the parts of your brain that control your memories and your emotions. It's why when you eat certain foods, your mind is transported to your grandmother's house and Thanksgiving and how wonderful that was. Or when you eat other foods, you think of a meal that you and your spouse shared early on in your dating life. Our minds process food 
differently than it processes almost anything else in the world around us. Jesus knew this. I know he knew this because he designed us that way. That's how he made us. And it's why in Jesus' ministry, so often he used metaphors or used actual food to drive home a point that he was trying to make about who he was, what God's kingdom was, and what Jesus was trying to accomplish in the people. Our story today is one of those instances. So let's look at John chapter 6. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll read through 15. So in John chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where, to, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii, or about two-thirds of a year's worth of work, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now this is one of the probably most well-known of the miracles that Jesus performed. You ask anybody, even if they can't even figure out where the Gospels are in the Bible, chances are they know or have at least heard that Jesus fed the 5,000. In the same way they probably know that Jesus turned water into wine or that he walked on water. This is just one of those miracles that everybody sort of knows that Jesus performed. This miracle, however... It's just, it's a little bit unique amongst all of the miracles. Uh, first and foremost, it is recorded for us in all four of the Gospels. It's the only miracle that is seen in all four of the historical narratives of Jesus' life. That's how important this particular miracle is and the lesson that Jesus is teaching by performing it. Um, the other thing that makes the miracle unique is that it was seen or it benefited or impacted the most people at once. Most of Jesus' miracles were impacted one person, maybe a handful of people, but this particular miracle, as John tells us, impacted 5,000 men. Matthew's gospel tells us that there were 5,000 men besides women and children. So when you add in the women and children, it's not unreasonable to think that there may have been somewhere like 20,000 people who had come 
to Jesus and needed to be fed, and Jesus fed them. So this miracle impacted a ton of people all at once. It's also unique in the type of miracle that it is. You see, a lot of Jesus' miracles were transformative. In other words, he took one thing and turned it into another. Think, think of turning water into wine. Some of Jesus' miracles were uh, a demonstration of his power over the physical world. Think of him walking on water as though it were dry land or causing fish to swim in a multitude into a boat's net. Some of Jesus' miracles were regenerative. Um, he took something that had died and he regenerated it. In other words, think of the miracles when he healed the blind or caused the lame to walk or healed the leper. He took something that had died that was wrong genetically and regenerated it to health. Or even when he raised the dead to life. This is a regenerative sort of miracle. But this miracle is different. It's different because this miracle is a creative miracle. Jesus took fish and he made more fish and more bread. He literally created these fish and bread ex nihilo, which is sort of a fancy way of saying he created it out of nothing. This was a demonstration, a claiming, if you will, of Jesus as the identity of God the creator. And I will remind you that way back in John 1, we are told that all of creation was made for Jesus, by Jesus, through Jesus. So in these moments, as Jesus, this moment, as Jesus is creating, he is literally demonstrating that I am the same God that created the heavens and the earth way back in Genesis 1. It makes this miracle pretty unique. Now, I sometimes wonder, as I, as I was reading this, I was wondering, what do you think that's th that fish and those loaves of bread tasted like? I mean, did Jesus merely take the properties of the existing fish and the existing loaves and replicate it so every piece of bread tasted like the original piece and every piece of fish tasted like the original piece? Or did it taste differently because Jesus created it? It had not been touched by a fallen world because Jesus literally created it on the spot and then the people consumed it. Did it taste better? I don't know. Speculation. Something that's fun to think about. But here's what I do know. What I do know is that everybody really, really, really liked the meal. They ate their fill, is what the, the Bible says to us. And now, I don't want you to get the wrong impression here. This isn't just a matter of people like a, like a supermodel taking a little cucumber chip and nibbling on it and say, oh, that's enough, thank you, I couldn't possibly eat any more. No, the word that John uses here that's translated for us as they ate their fill actually kind of evokes this image of a pig lying on its side, its belly bulging because it has literally gouged itself at the trough. That's how good this food was, that people ate and ate and ate more until they couldn't possibly eat anymore. That's how good the food was, and that's how much food there was. In fact, there was so much food that the disciples were able to collect 12 baskets left over, enough for them even. 
So this miracle is unique in that way. And as you read this particular passage, there are actually a number of applications that we can take out of it. Um, I imagine uh, in the weeks to come, Pastor Randy will actually revisit this passage. He may want to come back directly to the passage and pull out some of these other things that we're not going to talk about today. But I know that at least in a few weeks, he will revisit this passage because in just a few verses after what we read, Jesus brings up to the disciples, hey, you remember when I fed those 5,000? Here's what I was trying to do. Here's the point. Here's what I want you to see about that. So in a, in a few weeks at least, we will revisit that application of this particular passage. But as I read the passage in preparation for today, I got to say the last two verses sort of struck me. So let's look at those real quick. Um, uh, look at verse 14 again. Um, so the people uh, have been fed by Jesus. By the way, the people also had been healed by Jesus. Uh, the, Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus spent the day teaching them and healing them. So this was a day where a lot of miracles were performed and the people saw a lot of blessings poured into their lives. So in verse 14, it says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, that's probably quoted in your Bible, and if your Bible has cross-references, you probably can look at that cross-reference and see that there's a reference to Deuteronomy there. You see, this is actually harkens back to a prophecy that Moses gave way back in Deuteronomy, where he promised that after him God would send a prophet greater than him. And the people in this moment, they kind of make the connection. You see, that's one of the earliest messianic prophecies that the Old Testament is full of that we are given, where God sort of foretells that the Messiah is coming. And Moses predicts it. And the people actually make the connection. They're like, you know what? I remember learning in Sunday school that Moses, that God through Moses provided manna in the wilderness as they traveled. And here is Jesus doing something very similar for us, providing us with free food. Aha, this must be the Messiah, the one who is to come. You see, the people actually get it right to an extent. The problem was that their view of Messiah, who Messiah would be and what Messiah would actually do, was flawed. It was skewed. But look at what they do then in verse 15. Perceiving then that they, the people, were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, they had just experienced free health care and free food, and they were like, that's our guy. I'm really glad that we don't vote for our leaders based on the same criteria. But they looked at Jesus and said, that's who we want to be king, a guy that gives us free food and free health care. Let's make him king. Let's install him in a revolutionary act to make him king. And of course, Jesus understood that this was not his time. This was not the way that God's kingdom was going to come about. So he separated himself from the people so that God's plans would not be foiled. Spoiler alert, God's plans weren't foiled. God's plans never are foiled. So Jesus removes himself because the people wanted a king. But, you know, before we judge these people too harshly, 
for their obsession with a king that will give them stuff and do things for them. What we really need to understand is that they are not unique in history. In fact, they aren't even unique in their own country's history. The people on this Galilean hillside that want to make Jesus king are merely echoing the sentiments of their ancestors. So turn back the calendar about a thousand years and turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 8. God's people had always been different than the nations around them. Um, their, Their system of governance flowed through the very throne room of God. He was the one that established their laws. He provided them with their counsel. He was the one that gave them their provisions. When they strayed too far away from him, he would appoint a judge to lead the people. And yet, through all of this, the history of God's chosen people in Israel, their history was like the tides of the ocean, ebbing and flowing to and from God. There would be a generation that would turn away from God and do what was right in their own eyes, and the tide would flow away from the shore where God was. And then God would send a judge into their midst to lead them back to the shore, back toward, towards God's heart and mind, and they would be blessed abundantly. And yet, even with this cycle and the demonstrably true fact that every time they went towards God, they were blessed, in the time of 1 Samuel here, the people had grown tired of God's way of doing things. Samuel was a prophet, uh, and he was an appointed judge. Uh, Now, it would turn out that he would be the last of the appointed judges. And the people, uh, not really wanting to do it God's way anymore, uh, come to Samuel and they make their demands known. So let's look then at verse 4 and read from there. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You see, they wanted a king, but they already had one. God was their king. So when God pointed out, look, Samuel, they're not rejecting your leadership. They are actually rejecting me. So when the people said, we want an earthly king, God, this wasn't just them saying, we'd like to try a different system of government. No, this was the people committing an act of treason against their king, telling their king, you're not good enough. They were rebelling against God. And what's it called when we rebel against God? This is sin. Sin motivated their desire to have an earthly king. But if your king 
is God himself, the very creator of the universe, the one that creates the air that you breathe, that causes the crops to grow, that causes the animals to taste so good and delivers you out of the bondage of Egypt into the promised land, what in the world would cause you to rebel against this kind of king? Well, we actually don't have to speculate because the people are pretty clear about why they want a king. God says to Samuel, look, do what they want, but first give them this warning. Tell them what a king will mean. And Samuel does that. He goes to the people and says, look, you want a king, here's what's going to happen. Here's all the bad things that are going to happen. And he lays out this list of things that will come about if a king is installed in Israel. Two of them are that your young men will be conscripted into the army and your taxes will go up. And wouldn't you know it if you read the remainder of the historical books in the Old Testament, yes, all the things that Samuel predicted came true at some point in time under some king in Israel. He nailed it. And yet, having given this warning, the people respond to God this way. So look at verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So why did they want a king? They wanted someone that would protect them, as though God was unable to protect them. But they wanted a king that would lead them in battle against the nations around them. But that's not the only reason they gave. In fact, when you give reasons for things, we tend to order them, the first being the most important to us. So what was the first reason that they gave that they wanted a king? Did you catch it? Give us a king so that we can be like all the nations around us. In other words, they wanted to look like everyone else. But their king, God, demanded they look different than everyone else around them. That's the king that they wanted. A king that would give them what they wanted and would then help them, allow them to look like everyone around them. Now, fast forward again a thousand years to that hillside in Galilee, and this is still what the people are doing. They are rejecting Jesus for the king that he is in replace for the king they want him to be. They had terms for what they wanted Jesus to be as king. And their terms were relatively straightforward. Jesus, we want you to be our king. When we are sick, heal us. When we are hungry, feed us. And, and deliver us from the oppression of Caesar and that pretender Herod. And while you're at it, make us a great nation like Rome that we might compete on that kind of stage. You do those things for us, Jesus, but you know, other than that, we're pretty good. You can, you do those things and then you can take the day off and we'll sort of manage the day to day just fine. Thank you very much. That, those were their terms. Jesus, on the other hand, had very different terms and still does. He says to us, if you want me to be your king, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I will give you life itself. In return, you will give me your heart 
and your mind. There will be no aspect, aspect of your life that is off limits to me as your king. Yes, I will give you freedom, but it is a freedom far better than the freedom from some sort of physical tyrant. This is a freedom from death itself. Now, don't worry, I'm going to take care of Rome. In fact, I'm going to take care of all of the nations throughout history. I will make them a footstool beneath my feet, but I will do it on my terms, not on yours. These were Jesus' terms, and they didn't like them. Jesus had a whole set of different terms for what it meant for him to be king than they had for what it meant to be king. You see, in actuality, when the people placed their own terms on Jesus as king, what they were saying was, Jesus, we want all your stuff, but we don't want you. They were saying, Jesus, I think I'd still like to be king for these areas of my life. Brothers and sisters, this is the fight that we are still having with God today. We say things like Jesus is Lord of Lords, Jesus is King of Kings, but far too often, for far too many of us, we place our own terms on what those titles mean. We say, Jesus, you are King of my life. Well, G Jesus, you are King of my Sundays and, and maybe some Wednesdays if I'm not too tired after work. And, and maybe to be more precise, you're king of my Sundays and Wednesdays when I'm at church. We say, Jesus, you are king of my life. Here is my heart. I'm just going to keep these parts for myself. And we, when we say that to Jesus, when we place terms like that on Jesus, we are saying, Jesus, you know, really, I want your stuff, but I want to be king. That's what we do. We want Jesus to bless us, but we don't want any of the demands that Jesus might have of us. It's why when we read scripture and we hear Jesus say, give us this day our daily bread, we, pro we proclaim, hail King Jesus. Forgive us our trespasses, hail King Jesus, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute, Jesus. You, no, no, come on. I mean, you don't know what that person did to me. You don't know how she hurt me or how he overstepped those bounds. Wait a minute. Not only do you want me to forgive people, you want me to forgive them 70 times 7? Come on, Jesus. There's got to be a limit here, right? I mean, that just only sounds reasonable. Or we hear Jesus say something like, You have heard it said, Thou shalt not murder. Hail, King Jesus! But I say to you, if you harbor anger in your heart against your brother, you will be liable to judgment. Whoa, you can't possibly mean that, Jesus. I mean, let's be honest. Anger is a very natural thing. I'm only human, after all. And, after, and, and you know, I only get angry at my brother or my sister when they do something really, really wrong. So you can't mean that, can you, Jesus? Or Jesus tells us something like, I define marriage. And we say, yeah, but, I mean, I, Jesus, I at least have to have 
a libertarian attitude against, about this, okay? You know, sort of a live and let live approach to it. Because, you know, if I, if I go with you, I might hurt someone's feelings. And I might get ostracized from the people around me who think differently. And I, I might even lose my job. Or Jesus says to us, there are things about your sexuality that honor me and things that dishonor me. And we say, yeah, but Jesus, come on. I mean, what's the big deal, right? I mean, two consenting adults. Does it really hurt anything in the end? Come on, Jesus. Stop being a prude. Or we hear Jesus say something like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we say, yeah, but, I mean, there's like qualities of enemies, right? You know, like this guy here, he's not that bad, so okay, I can love him. But that guy over there, he's really, really bad. You don't expect me to love him, right, Jesus? And when I'm praying for those who persecute me, what you mean by that, right, Jesus, is you mean my prayer should be, I pray that you smite them. Right? Right, Jesus? We do these things. We place these terms on Jesus as king. And when we do those things, we say, Jesus, I want to be king. But Jesus' terms for being king are quite different for us. Jesus responds this way. He says, anyone who wants to save his life will lose it. But anyone who loses his life for my sake will gain it. In other words, if you want me to be the kind of king that gives you the safety and comfort of this physical world, that only leads to death. But if instead you surrender to who I am actually as king, yes, you may be persecuted. And yes, it may cost you something. It may even cost you your life. But what I'm telling you is that I will give you eternal life. These are Jesus's demands, his terms as king. And the question to us is, would we rather be a king of a vast domain or would we rather have Jesus? Because that's the ultimate question today. That's our challenge, my friends, today. Uh, Pastor Randy actually talks to us often about the faith growth process. The, the technical theological term for that is the sanctification process. That, that way in which the Holy Spirit works in and through our lives to make us to look more and more like Jesus on a day-by-day -day basis. And a large part of that sanctification process, that growing in our faith, is giving up, surrendering more and more of what we cling to to King Jesus until at the end the only thing that we have that we claim as our own is Jesus himself. And that's our challenge today is to surrender to Jesus as the king that he is rather than the king that we want him to be. The Holy Spirit is working on your heart and your mind. I know that. And here's how I know that. You are here amongst God's people. You could be virtually anywhere else. You could be at home on your couch enjoying a nice television program. You could be at 
Panera, sipping a coffee next to their nice warm fire. You could be all manner of other places, and yet for some reason you were led to this building with these people to worship God in song, to hear God pray to, and to hear God's word preached. The Holy Spirit is working in your life. The Holy Spirit is working to bring you under submission to Jesus as king. This is your opportunity. Now, perhaps this is all new to you. You've never really contemplated Jesus as king. I got news for you. Jesus is already your king. The only difference between the person who believes and the person who doesn't believe is that the believer acknowledges Jesus as king. The unbeliever rebels against Jesus as king. But Jesus is already everybody's king. And he will get his due at the end of time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is already your king. But maybe this is your opportunity to give your heart and your mind to Jesus as your Lord, your Savior, and your King. Maybe you have walked with Jesus for a very, very long time. Things have gone well, things have gone poorly. But in these moments, you are still clinging to something, to some term that you have dictated to Jesus, said, this is mine, Jesus, and you need to surrender that to him as King. Maybe that's where you are. This is also your moment to do that. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us, and Troy will come up and lead us in a song of invitation. Listen to the still, small voice of God, and you come as the Holy Spirit leads. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that we can call you King. Father, we apologize and repent of the times that we place our own terms upon your kingship in our lives. We ask that the Holy Spirit would, would intervene and intrude upon those times and would change us to be more like you, that we might call you King Jesus and that we might actually live as though Jesus is King. Father, I pray that you do that in us and through us because you are so worthy of the title of King. You are the only one worthy of that title. Earthly kings, queens, princes, princesses, prime ministers, presidents, they will all let us down. Father, you, our king, will never let us down. And we just praise you and honor you for that. We thank you for who you are, God. We thank you for what you do. And we thank you for Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.